Good morning, it's good to see you today. Encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, if you're visiting with us, uh, we find ourselves in the middle of an exposition through the book of Philippians, and we are in chapter 2, and today we'll be considering verses 7 and 8, verses 7 and 8, with the title of the message, From Glory to Disgrace. We've been considering this theme of unity and this theme of humility that that Paul has been pressing really since back in chapter 1 and verse 27, that the way we are going to have an impact to the world and to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ is to be united together and striving together. He then takes that on a very personal level and points that towards each other, that we must do these things, as he states in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness and empty conceit, But with humility of mind, regard one another is more important than themselves. And then he gets to the grand, the the, the par excellence example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 5, he states, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And goes on to tell of um, what the Lord has done and his humiliation before us. Uh, as we've said before, we're treading on holy ground. These are deep things um, that are before us. And um, by God's grace, we will work our way through. The missionary, the first American Baptist missionary, some of you know the name, Adoniram Judson, went to India in 1812. A year later, he went with his wife, a year later he would go to Burma. And as he's ministering there, by the way, that was against the advice of William Carey, the more experienced missionary. But as he's there, he's interacting with the Burmese teacher. And he's explaining that this whole idea of Christianity, of a father sending his son to suffer. And this Burmese teacher could not fathom that, could not grasp that a king would send his own son to suffer. Judson would go on record stating that you cannot be a disciple of Christ if you do not believe that one truth. And isn't it true that that's a stumbling block? As you're talking to, uh, this, in this day and age, an atheistic society, people who really no, have any, no theological background whatsoever, and you try to explain them about Jesus Christ and how he came and how he was pre-existent in glory, humbled himself and the Trinity and all of that stuff, you, you lose people. It's a stumbling block. And Paul specifically says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that it's a stumbling block for the Jews and the Greeks. B.B. Warfield, the, the Princeton theologian, probably the last good theologian about 100 years ago at Princeton, says this, What is more unnatural than the the God of the universe should become a servant in the world, ministering not to his Father only, but also to his creatures, our Lord and Master, washing our very feet? What is more abhorrent than that God should die? There is no length to which Christ's self-sacrifice did not lead him. And we're going to unpack a little bit more of what that looks like in our text today. So let's read the text. I'm going to read verses 5 to 11 to get the fuller context. From the New American Standard Bible, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, 
did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that you would loosen our tongues this day, that we would give you the praise, the adoration that is due your holy name. Lord, we we thank you so much for the rich text before us, and we pray, O God, that you would open up our eyes, that you would remove the dullness from our heart, Lord, that you would replace that with a fire and a zeal to want to know Christ more and to understand the depths of his humiliation and the heights of his exaltation. And so, Lord, these weeks we pray that you would be doing a work in each and every one. And we know that that work will not happen if the third person of the Holy Trinity is not present. And so, Lord, we beg of thee, send the Holy Spirit and pour him out, as it were, upon each one of us. Lord, that we may know your presence this very day. We ask, O God, that you would give us understanding that how the Son of God could conquer even through suffering. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Apostle Paul, as I began to sort of touch on earlier back in chapter 2, says, Make my joy overflowing, filled to the rim, as it were, by doing these things. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind and maintaining the same love and united in one spirit. And so Paul's great desire for the church at Philippi, of which it's been some time since he's been there, And, of course, there was people coming back and forth, which we'll get to. So he had visitors, and he had close contact with them, but he had not personally been there, as far as we know, for some time. And his great desire for them is that they would be unified, that their love for one another would be real, that it would not be superficial, that they would not be be exerting their own petty preferences above others that would cause conflict within the church you know, arguing over the color of the pew, or why did we do more choruses than hymns, and more hymns than choruses, or whatever, you know, these types of things. He wants it to be unified, and so he says in verse 4, to look out, verse 4, chapter 2, he says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. That is to, to zoom in as with a telescope, to look out, to see how you can be a blessing unto others. And then last week we saw in verses 5 and 6, in particular in in verse 6, that although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was preexistent with the Father, clothed in splendor and in majesty, and yet he came and relinquished those rights as something that to, not to be demanded. In other words, a thing to be grasped, that, that, that it was, was not something that he exerted those rights for. And so as we come to the verses 7 and 8, and we continue this section on Christ's humiliation, this is no doubt, and I agree with many commentators, the most difficult section 
uh, in the entire book. It is a theological diamond, however, that, as Johnson states, in heightened language and matchless eloquence, Paul tells the story of a king who stooped to serve and who, by serving, conquered. That's an amazing thing to grasp. And that Burmese teacher in Burma could not grasp it. And many others cannot grasp that idea. But it's one that really comes as the Holy Spirit would open our hearts. I don't usually bring long quotes into the pulpit, but I have one that I think is is worth um, reading. And it's uh, another Princeton theologian before B.B. Warfield, Charles Hodge on the sufferings of Christ. And I trimmed this down uh, as small as I could get it, but it's still long. But try to track with it if you would. The sufferings of Christ, and especially his disgraceful death on the cross, are an important element in his humiliation. These sufferings continued from the beginning to the end of his earthly life. They arose partly from natural infirmities and the sensibilities of the nature which he assumed, partly from the condition of poverty in which he lived, partly from the constant contact with sinners, which was a continual grief to his holy soul and caused him to exclaim, How long shall I be with you? How long will I suffer with you? Partly from the insults and neglects and opposition to which he was subjected, partly from the cruel buffetings and the scornings to which he submitted, and especially from the agonies of the crucifixion, the most painful as well as the most shameful mode of inflicting the penalty of death, partly from the anguish caused by the foresight of that dreadful doom that awaited the whole Jewish nation, and especially, no doubt, from the mysterious sorrow arising from the load of his people's sins and the hiding of his father's face, which forced him which forced from his brow the sweat of blood in the garden, and from the lips the cry of anguish which he uttered on the cross. These are not only wonders of love, but they are wonders of surrender and of humiliation, in which angels endeavor to comprehend, but, but which no human mind can understand or estimate. There was never sorrow like unto this sorrow. So that comes from a much broader section in his systematic theology on the doctrine of Christ, and in this section, the sufferings of Christ. But I like what he says there, that there's no sorrow that unto this sorrow, no matter what you have gone through, it is not as bad as what Jesus Christ has endured. The depths of his humiliation from divine majesty and glory to even just come and to put on human flesh and and to be born of a virgin and to live among sinners, he himself being sinless, but then paying for the sins of his people. So we've already, this is part two of this message, we've already considered the design of humility in verse five, the idea that theological truths have ethical implications and so that exhortation that is there Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Perhaps a better way to state that is reconfigure the inclinations of your heart so that you would look out for the interest of others. And then in verse 6, the descent of humiliation, as which I just said, clothed in splendor and majesty to come and to take on human flesh. 
He did not regard equality with God an advantage to be exploited would be another way of saying that or a thing to be grasped. And now we come to verse 7, the depths of humiliation. Verse 7, the depths of humiliation. First of all, look at the word, the very first word in verse 7. Let me read 6 again. Who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. The but is a strong contrast. It's something that is unexpected. He completely emptied himself. Although he was full deity, he'd emptied himself, not of his deity, but of the prerogatives of his deity. In fact, the um, canonic theologians of the 19th century took this literally. Of course, he must have emptied himself of his deity. No, that's heresy if you claim that. Let's consider this word um, that, that's here for emptied. And kenos is the, the word, the verb. And um, it's related to the adjective. In Luke 20, we're familiar with the parable of the vine growers. It says the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. You remember that. Well, empty-handed is this word. But Paul is the only one who uses the verb, and it's always used metaphorically. So, for example, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 1.17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. That's the idea. It's used figuratively. It's not that the cross can be emptied like a cup of water, right? It's used metaphorically here. And so Paul uses it in that way. So the point here is that he humbled himself not by discarding his divine power and knowledge, but by adding to his divine power and knowledge a real, complete human nature, limited like ours, with all the the weaknesses and frailties of human flesh, but without the filth of Adam's sin. So that sin that we inherit from our great-great-grandfather, Adam, that has been passed down from your father and mother, Jesus, did not have. He emptied himself. It's a self-renunciation, a refusal to what was rightfully his. Clinging to those advantages, a refusal to cling to those privileges. Of course, we know that he did not empty himself of his deity. That would be impossible. You would have a broken God. Mules, one of the commentators says, he emptied himself, describes incarnation. It could never mean anything that would hurt or distort his absolute fitness to bless those for whom he came to save. So think of it, in Jesus' day, the Jews are awaiting what kind of king? One that's going to come in power, one that's going to come and conquer, one that's going to uh, obliterate the enemies and establish a wonderful royal kingdom. And they wanted it in the here and now. They didn't understand. It is this idea of Christ coming in humiliation, his first coming, and dying a terrible death. They were, did not expect him to be born of an insignificant family and so forth, and really a peasant family, and to be born in a barn. So what did he empty himself of? He emptied himself of his radiant glory. Okay, it's the visible glory unto us, unto man. He emptied himself of that. 
He emptied himself of his authority. John 5 and verse 30. I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he emptied himself of his authority. He emptied himself of his riches. And this is probably the best verse that summarizes this section of Philippians. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. What else did he empty himself of? Well, um, he voluntarily restricted some of his attributes during his earthly ministry. Voluntarily restricted some of his attributes. Let me give you an example. John chapter 1, remember the Nathaniel? Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus said to him, before Philip called you and you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So he definitely knew, he's omniscient, he, he, he knew, right? It was beyond what we would think from reading John 1, beyond the, the, the uh, ability to see from human eyes. He saw him because he's omniscient. But yet, in Matthew 24, in the Olivet Discourse, he says, no man knows when the Son of Man will come, not men, not even the Son of Man. He restricted his omniscience in that situation, in his humanity. And so he gave up some of the prerogatives of his deity. Not that he ceased to be God in any way, shape, or form. Listen to John Calvin. John Calvin comments on this verse and says, Christ indeed could not divest himself of Godhead, but he kept it concealed for a time that it might not be seen under the weakness of his flesh. Hence, he laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening it, but by concealing it. Paul speaks of Christ holy as he was God manifested in the flesh. But nevertheless, this emptying is applicable exclusively to his humanity. So he emptied himself. Secondly, he took on the form of a bond servant or a slave. The word is doulos in the original. Here is the second occasion of this, um, the word morphe, which occurred in the form of God in verse 6, <clears throat> the only two times Paul uses it. And it, it's the exterior form with the internal reality. So just as Paul began in verse 6 with the pre-incarnate state, existence, and glory, here he says he takes the form of a slave. Listen to one of the older commentators, John Stone. He says, form here is to be taken in its widest sense as the mode in which the nature reveals itself or has its characteristics exhibited. Remember we talked last time about a king in a certain kingdom that would humble himself and put on regular clothes and go to an area of the kingdom where nobody would recognize him. And not only that, he became one of the common men, but then he descended even lower and became a slave among those men. Here, the king humbled himself to become a commoner, but then even degraded even more to become a slave. And that's the picture of what Christ has done. So the point here is Paul wants us to understand the attitude of our Lord, this infinite king, king of kings, voluntarily 
took on this downward step of condescension of unimaginable proportions. He did not have to cling to his position. He did not exert his rights, but he did voluntarily become nothing. He became a slave, a a, a doulos, a slave, and owned nothing, not even the clothes on your back. You have no possessions as a slave. You belong yourself to somebody else. You're not your own, literally. And of course, the word tells us Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life as a ransom for many. We know that he took this posture of a slave. He emptied himself by taking on this. So it's really the addition rather than a subtraction, right? You think, well, it's a, but it's, it's taking on additionally to be a slave, not only in his humanity. Remember John 13, he stooped by washing the filth off the disciples' feet. The depths in which the Son of God plunged himself are unimaginable. John Murray says it was to God that the Father, that he assumed this relation, and it was the will of the Father that he surrendered himself in the subjection and obligation. What amazing love. This is exactly how he lived his entire life. You would think, if it was you that had to humble yourself to this state, and in that degree, which is impossible because you're just a sinner like everyone else. But imagine, just for a moment, if it was, you'd probably say after a month or after a, a week or maybe after an hour of being around a bunch of sinners that that's it, I'm out of here. But no, Jesus stays the course. He came to fulfill the purpose for which the Father sent him to redeem, actually bring about redemption for the people. He had to be a suitable sacrifice. He had to be sinless. He had to keep God's law in every respect to be a suitable sacrifice. And he goes on in verse 7 here, not only the form of a bondservant, but it says being made in the likeness of men or being born, the valid translation of um, the Greek word there. So the idea here that, that he's being born in the likeness of man. John Calvin, again, commenting on this idea, likeness of man, says, for Paul means that he had been brought down to the level of mankind so that there was in appearance nothing that differed from the common condition of mankind. So, in other words, it was a real humanity, He really did don human flesh. He really was a man in every aspect of it except for sin. Don't fall into the Gnostic heresy of saying that he's a phantom humanity, that he wasn't really man. He appeared as a man, taking this verse that from a distance he looked like a man. Kind of like the images behind the curtains. It's supposed to be kind of a man, but not really one, no. Uh, But he was a real man. Not just that he came as a man, but he fully identified with our humanity, and that's why the virgin birth was absolutely necessary. In other words, Jesus was not a mere copy of a man or a facsimile of what a man was. He actually became a human being, including all the features and attributes that make up man. 
all the limitations, all the frailties, and isn't that what we read as we read for us in our New Testament reading, Hebrews 2, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in what? All things. It couldn't just be in some things, but all things. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. How else can he be a compassionate high priest if he doesn't know what it's like to be weary? If he doesn't know what it's like to be tempted in all things and yet without sin? If he doesn't know what it's like to be physically, absolutely, completely worn out and exhausted? He knew these things. Because of his humanity. And so therefore he can be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. But not only that, that he would satisfy the just wrath of the Father for your sin. That's what propitiation means. The just wrath of the Father for your personal sin. If you're a Christian, was satisfied by Jesus on the cross. That is good news. That's news worthy of doing cartwheels after the benediction, not in the worship service. But cartwheels, seriously, that's good news. So he's without human father. Jesus was born of a woman, Galatians 4.4. He had a fleshly body that is a real body, Colossians 1. And and Romans 8, Paul goes on to say that... um, what God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now notice, the likeness of sinful flesh. He had a real flesh. He was a real person, but he was sinless. That's the only way that he could be a substitute that would satisfy that just wrath of the Father. You cannot fully understand these two natures of Christ just by looking externally. Remember when that great moment of revelation, Peter, halfway through the Gospel of Matthew, where he said, who do men say that I am? And, and, and you know, John the Baptist, da-da-da, and all of this, right? And then Peter gets it right. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. What does Jesus say? He says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Paul would write to Timothy in his first letter, chapter 3 and verse 16, Great is the mystery of godliness. And then in that short poem or hymn or whatever that is in verse 16 states that he was revealed in the what? The flesh, right? You see how this is all over scripture, that he took on real flesh. He was a real man. Now the mystery, of course, is the fact that this is humanity could be wedded together with his divinity in one person. But that's exactly what the Bible teaches. The two natures united into one person. You take away the one, you've got heresy. You take away the other, you've got heresy. If you say it's a 50-50 thing and it equals 100%, therefore I know my math, it's right. That's heresy. He didn't become half God and half human. You've got to understand the teacher of the, 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 the teaching of the greater body of Holy Scripture. The two natures united in one. Hypostatic union is with a theological term that's used of Christ's humanity and his divinity in one individual existence. Turn to Mark chapter 4 with me. Mark chapter 4. The very end of the chapter, the section in which Jesus stills the sea. 
They leave the crowd. They go out on the boat. This is after preaching and teaching all day, probably every daylight hour that day, 12 to 14 hours. They're on the boat. Jesus is asleep in the stern, verse 38, on a cushion. And verse 37, a fierce gale of wind and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was filling up with water. Verse 38, they come to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Stop right there. Jesus is asleep, exhausted from a day of full packed ministry. He's asleep even in the midst of a storm. You see his humanity very clearly there, right? Obviously so. And then, of course, look at the next verse. And he got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why were you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? And then notice verse 41. And they became very much afraid. And they said to one another, Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Do you see the point here? That to the degree that they are absolutely alarmed by being in the midst of what would be maybe just a severe storm where the boat's filling up with water, there's an alarm, a fear for their physical lives. Once they wake up Jesus and Jesus calms the storm, they realize they're face-to-face with deity and they're twice as scared, or who knows how many times scared, more scared than what they were of the waves. Who then is this that the wind and the sea obey his voice? Again, I bring this up because you have his humanity and that he's weary, he's exhausted. And look at the context of Mark 4, he'd been preaching all day. Okay, and then finally he's exhausted and he's sleeping in a boat, even in the midst of a storm, and then his deity to where the nature obeys him. Let's see, these were just like little brush strokes being given, as it were, by the Holy Spirit in the disciples' mind as they would learn more and more about who Jesus was. And they learned more and more into that fuller picture of him being raised from the dead and conquering death. But it comes in little bits, little times of revelation, like in Mark 4. So, the design, the descent of humiliation, the depths of humiliation, and finally, verse 8, the decline into death. Let's read it again. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, this is shocking, of course, for the eternal God-man to suffer unto death. He did come to give his life as a ransom for many. He told his disciples that over and over again. It had been prophesied a myriad of times already in the Old Testament. First of all, he humbles himself. Probably a shift in his form of attitude, laying himself low, not only to God, but also to other men, humbling himself to even serving mankind. Of course, we know that this is clearly seen in that his arrest, the mock trials, and the crucifixion that would take place, of which make up a huge percentage of the Gospels that we have. The Passion Week, that last week of our Lord, make up 
a huge portion of the Gospels. I think it's something like 30% if you add up all four Gospels. It's nearly 50% on the Gospel of John alone. But you have all this. And in one verse, Mark 14 and verse 65, we see some began to spit at him, and they blindfolded him, and they beat him with their fist, and they were saying to him, prophesy, and the officers were receiving him with slaps all over his face. One verse, and we know that there's myriads of verses like this that describes the depths of the humiliation and even the decline into death as he's nearing death just hours from these events. As he would take the iron nails into his wrist and into his feet and be nailed upon a cross, cruelly treated, treated like a common criminal, treated like the worst of the dregs of humanity as the Son of God. That final aspect of humiliation is death. But notice how it says, by becoming obedient to the point of death. That's very interesting. He cried even in the garden of Gethsemane, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Notice that sweet submission. Notice that attitude of obedience to his father of wanting to please his Father in all things and to fulfill the very mission of God and and redeeming his people. But in his agony, as he's sweating, as it were, drops of blood in the garden, in his agony, he's saying, Father, if there's any other way, let it be, but nevertheless not as I will, as you will. Another commentator, Ralph Martin, says his obedience is a sure token of his deity and authority, for only a divine being can accept death as obedience. For ordinary men, it is a necessity. See, for ordinary men, it's just a necessity because death spread to all men, Romans chapter chapter 5, right? But for the divine, it was obedience to the Father. His obedience is the anthem song of the second half of Romans chapter 5, of which I hope you're familiar with, where it's comparing the first Adam with the second Adam. And and, and that the obedience is the theme there, where finally in verse 19 he says, even so through the obedience of the one, the many were made righteous. His divine glory was veiled behind his human flesh, and his slave out, slave clothes on the outside. But this was the plan of the Father to bring about redemption for his people. Confounding the wise, for sure. In John chapter 10, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. So he even has authority over his life. So consider the obedience of Jesus for a minute. First of all, in his earthly life, his whole entire earthly life, no times of exception. Now, if you're a good Christian man or woman or boy or girl, you know, you you want to please the Lord in all respects. And and maybe for some of you young people, you're going to try not to pinch your sister no matter how hard it is. You're really going to try not to do it. And maybe you actually go for like three weeks. It's like it's a record. You know, you've never gone more than three days, right? 
But eventually you fall on your face and you sin, right? For some of us, okay, I'm never going to raise my voice to my children again. And what happens? You know, maybe maybe we've got a good track record, but then something happens. And the Lord allows these sinful inclinations and manifestations, of course, to humble us that we might look to Christ and see the satisfaction that there is in Christ. But my point is this. In Jesus' obedience, it's his entire life. 33 plus years, never sinning. But then, also, his obedience, the extent of it, reveals that it was even unto death. So there was no personal limitations. I'll obey all of this, but no, he obeyed all the way unto death. Now we know next week, the preview is that for this reason, God highly exalted him. And so he is exalted in the heavens. He should be exalted in your own heart. We know that that's the result of it. Paul goes on. And quoting this hymn, or whatever it is, and he says, to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, it's one thing to be obedient all your life and, and never wavering. It's another thing to be obedient even unto death when you don't deserve it, but even death on a cross. You see, he could have been beheaded. He could have been hanged. These things, the death is much quicker, Right? Crucifixion is the climax of humiliation. It's the climax, really. And when it says, even death on a cross, the word even calls attention to the startling feature of Christ's ultimate humiliation. You know, it's one thing to understand, and you've got to get this idea out of your head. Jesus came and, and he just went to the cross and all of that. No, he, he lived for 33 years in humiliation and the limitations of human flesh around a bunch of pagan sinners and seeing only little bits of fruit as he would heal and as he would touch during his earthly ministry. That humiliation went all through his life, but then all the way to death and even death on a cross. That is the bottom. That is the depths of despair. Not just death, but this death by crucifixion. Unimaginable pain. The worst way one could die. It was reserved for slaves and criminals. Roman citizens cannot be crucified. The Jews hated it because they remembered the curse in Deuteronomy 21. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And the cross being made of wood, it's cursed. Paul alludes to that in Galatians 3. Listen to one writer from the 19th century, uh, Farrar is his name, from his book Life in Christ, page 403, says, describing crucifixion, listen to this. It included pain and death and horrible dizziness, cramp thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, Shame, the publicity of shame, long continuance of torment, the horror of anticipation, all intensified just up to the point by which they can be endured at all, but all stopping just short of that point that would give the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. The position made movement painful, and the lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. 
See, what he's describing there is something to where you're just begging to pass out. That's what you want to do. And, of course, that's what some of the victims did. That's why, they, that's why there was this, you know, well, we can't think that he's risen from the dead. Maybe he wasn't really dead when they took him off the cross. He was just unconscious and so forth. But, no, he really did die. Remember the, the uh, spear in his side. But that pain that can't be escaped or lessened in any way, shape, or form, the, 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 the suffocation, actually, as you're hanging there and you, you've got to pull yourself up to get a breath. And with that, all the lacerations and, and tendons and, and all of that would be intensified. Listen to Charles Spurgeon commenting on Philippians 2.8, actually from his morning and evening. He says this, Is not this sentence a compendulum of his biography? He humbled himself. Was he not on earth always stripping off first one robe of honor and then another till he was naked, till he was fastened on the cross and there pouring out his lifeblood, giving it up all for us till they laid him in a penniless in a borrowed grave? How low was our dear Redeemer brought? And he admonishes, stand at the foot of the cross. Count the purple drops by which you have been cleansed. See the crown of thorns. Mark his scourge soldiers, shoulders. See his hands and his feet given up to the rough iron. And his whole self of mockery to scorn. See the bitterness and the pangs and the throes of inward grief showing themselves in his outward frame. Hear the thrilling shriek, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is what Jesus has endured for his people in his humiliation. This is what your Savior has endured for you. Brothers and sisters, I hope that as Christmas comes in a month and a half or so, whatever degree you celebrate that, that it's not about a baby in a manger. Yes, he became a human. He did become a baby, but that baby grew and he lived for 33 years in humiliation uh, in, in limited in the limitations of his human flesh and then ultimately died this horrible death to make atonement for the sins of the people. Of course, we know that other cry on the cross. It is finished. The work of atoning for sin is done once and for all with the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So, a couple concluding comments. Consider that the one who existed in glory in eternity past that was worshipped by angels humbled himself and came. And God's great plan, this was mandatory for salvation. Paul specifically says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having what? Become a curse for us. That blessed substitute, the one that stood in our place and in our stead. He came into the world as a human being, even as a slave of no reputation, to take our sin upon himself. Hebrews, quoting the psalm, says, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to what? To do thy will, O God. Consider this, that the eternal Son of God died the worst of criminals killed by humans. Consider that he died on the cross, scorned while he was completely naked, 
What depths of shame. Consider that he suffered the anathema of God as he poured out his wrath upon his own son and the rejection of men. What agony. But our glorious, sinless substitute bore the sins of his people. A sinful people deserving nothing but hell, he bore those sins. What mercy. What mercy. What love. What eternal love that he would set his love upon us and come and to die for us. What a blessing it is to be in the family of God as sons and daughters of God. Simple application. Our great need is to learn how to humble ourselves for the sake of others. Paul paints this picture. Whether it's, it's not just Christ as an example, go and do like that. But because you're united to Christ, Christ has done this. This is the motive that we have. To humble ourselves for the sake of others and to maintain that unity, that bond of peace that we enjoy one with another. The next time you want to exert your personal rights and and you want to try to win the, the battle or the fight or the argument or whatever it is, you need to think of Jesus. Hebrews 5, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. If you're outside of Christ today, don't think you're going to be standing before Jesus with arms open in eternity, ready for compassion if you do not repent of your sins today. You have this life until you enter eternity, the first second in eternity, your eternal state is sealed forever. And if you will not repent in this life, do not think that there's a second chance or some mystical place of second chances. It doesn't exist. For it is appointed unto man, what? Once to die and then the judgment. So if you're outside of Christ, the word that I have for you is to flee to Christ and to humble yourselves, to throw your sin aside and to embrace Christ as that sin-bearing substitute who died for sinners. Christ came to die for the ungodly. Oh, but you don't understand. I'm too far gone. No, no, no. He's come to save the ungodly. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, He died for all, so that they who live may no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died and rose again on their behalf. Stop living for yourself and live to glorify God. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you, Lord, for the practical application and implications of deep theological truths of which we have been waiting and relishing and soaking in. Lord, help us not to forget the things for which we've learned this day. May we apply them faithfully as we live out our lives. We thank you for the great mystery and plan of salvation. We thank you for the covenant of redemption, even in eternity past, that before you even created, that you created in view of creating a people that you would redeem to be your own. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.